And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Kathy Forti, clinical psychologist who merged with the beings of light from the eighth dimension during her near-death experience, and today we're going to talk about it. Kathy, thank you for joining me, and welcome. Well, thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. It's well, been quite a ride. <laughs> well, I'm all up for hearing all about it. So if you don't mind, can we start on the day that you had this experience and go from there? Well, yeah. I was uh, I was a clinical psychologist practicing in uh, Los Angeles and uh, was my last client of the day. In fact, she was a Buddhist mon- a nun. And she, I remember her saying before we left, oh, this is the night of a Wiesack moon. And I thought, oh, what's a Wiesack moon, you know? And uh, she said, oh, that's when the veil between the dimensions is the thinnest and anything can happen. Mm. And, you know, I was just ready to go home for the night. It was tiring day. And as I went out to my car to the parking lot, all of a sudden I felt this whoosh come out of my solar plexus area. And with it, became, I, I had an immediate feeling like, um, I was done with my work here on Earth as I knew it. And that was the strangest feeling to have because, you know, uh, there was nothing that was going on in my life that would have contributed to that. And I also felt like all my friends had left, <laughs> you know, that empty, empty feeling inside. And I remember thinking to myself, well, if I'm not getting ready to die and I have to feel this sense of emptiness, this is just, this is going to suck. And so I went home uh, and I was thinking about this and I had a cup of tea in my hands and I must have dropped the tea because all of a sudden I saw this swirling vortex in my head. The next thing I was, I was sucked through this tunnel at a high rate, uh, very fast, and I was horizontal, feet first, traveling you know, like I'd never traveled before, like in a jet stream, and I saw light at the end of this tunnel. And, you know, we've all heard about tunnel experiences. And I I thought immediately, uh, is this the tunnel people are talking about when they die? And And if I died, what did I die of? I wasn't sick. And, you know, thoughts are going through your head fast. And I remember thinking, well, if I'm if I die, there's nothing I can do about it now. Let's just see what it's all about. So I was going towards the light and they stopped me right outside the light. And it felt like it was drawing me in, but I wasn't allowed to go forward. And I remember trying to will myself to go into it because it was like, what am I waiting for here? And nothing was happening. And I remember thinking, well, this is boring. And with that thought, this is boring. All this energy poured into me. I mean, it was like an implosion of energy and it spun me back around as fast as could be and set me back through the tunnel. And I was hearing voices in my head saying, breathe, Kathy, breathe. And the next minute I found myself back in my physical body and my whole left side was paralyzed. And uh, the, the tea had fallen on me. I hadn't fallen asleep, but the tea had fallen on me. And I just had an all knowing that my heart had stopped and whoever was talking to me was trying to get me to reconnect and breathe. And I still couldn't move. 
And there was this little sense of panic. And I heard the voices say to me, just relax. Everything will be okay. Just relax. And as, as I did, because there was nothing else I could do, you know, and I always joke to say when you're a psychologist and you hear voices in your head, that's not a good sign. Uh, but I did pay attention to what they were saying and I could feel them reconnecting the whole left side of my body. I actually heard clicks in my head as parts of my body were clicking back into place. And when I finally had movement again, I did have a feeling of uh, uh, there was a, um, a tightness in my chest. And I remember thinking, I'm not, I know I'm going to have to go see a cardiologist because if my heart is stopped, I need to find out if it's been damaged. And these beings said to me, don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. You won't need to see a doctor. And within 24 hours after returning from that experience, I was suddenly obsessed with quantum physics, with geometry, with math, with science. I mean, in ways that I had never contemplated before. And I was getting up in the middle of the night uh, between 3 and 4 a.m. and felt like I, I, wasn't, I couldn't go back to sleep unless I went on my computer and researched all the stuff that was going through my head. And the interesting thing was I was led to science pages and papers and so forth, and I was understanding what I was reading which was a surprise. And the, um, but the beings were telling me, well, that's not tr true. That's not totally correct. This is correct. This isn't correct, but that's as far as your race's understanding of it is right now. And this was going on night after night, you know, three to 4 a.m. I'd get up and get my learning experience. And every day I'd go back into work and just to do my clinical psych uh, patients. And I was feeling all of their emotions and energy. And, you know, when you start feeling other people's anger, it's not good, especially those who, you know, um, may have a more chaotic psychopathology. And, you know, I'm thinking like, what is going on here? So um, I had worked with this one, um, he's a medical intuitive, very, a very advanced compared to many I've met in my lifetime. And he would work with me sometimes when I had a very, very, very difficult client with the client's permission, he would go in and look behind the scenes to find out on a soul level what was going on with them, what was contributing to whatever their uh, particular issue was. And he didn't, he never wanted to know anything about them, but their name and their permission. That's it. So I called him and I said, uh, can you take a look and see what's going on with me? I hadn't told him anything of the experience. And so he went inside to look. I think he sometimes goes to the Akashic Records. And it took him a long time, which kind of worried me a little bit. And he came back and he goes, well, you almost died. He says, your heart stopped. He said, but you came back with a whole set of new beings. And he said, they're very technologically oriented, um, somewhat geeky, in fact. And I'm thinking to myself, what? You know, this might account for what's been going on. And I said, well, what do they want? And he said, um, this is really strange. This is, a, this is a, a contract you made before you came into this life. You could have still said no when you went into the tunnel, but on some level, you must have said, okay. And this is something you've done in the past. And he said that you, they're showing me that you're going to invent some type of medical device. And I started laughing, thinking like, 
uh, no, this is probably not going to happen because I don't know anything about, you know, devices, electronics and so forth like that. And he goes, no, they're showing me they're going to point you to the right picture, right people. And in time, the information that you already have hidden within you will come forth. And, you know, I kind of dismissed it thinking, well, he's finally wrong. You know, his batting average up until that time of being accurate was very high. And so I kind of tried to kind of push it aside thinking, well, that's not where I think my life is going. But I don't know if anybody ever remembers that old movie with uh, Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson called Magnificent Obsession. And it became a magnificent obsession. I could not let go of it until finally I said, okay, what is it you want me to do? And I thought, well, I'm supposed to, whatever information is getting ready to come down and I felt like I was getting up to speed on what was already out there in my nightly learning lessons. And so, you know, I started to look into inventors, you know, of quantum devices. And every time I did uh, everything, you might say, excuse the expression, the shit would hit the fan. And I would come up across obstacles and roadblocks. And I finally just threw up my hands. I said, what do you want? I, I, I don't. And as clear as could be, they said in my head, we don't want them to do it. We want you to do it. And this was a lesson in trust because I didn't think I was capable of that kind of stuff. And, and they said, no, you know this information. And you know, I found out that uh, this was very Atlantean information that I'd had many lifetimes in that realm and that I was bringing forth something in modern day packaging. So um, without telling my friends because they probably would have thought, oh, poor Kathy, she's gone off the deep end. I started, um, it took a five-year process to develop, and what they started to show me that everything in the universe was mathematically coded. Everything had a mathematical signature to it. Our DNA was mathematically coded too. So we needed to speak to all of that in our cellular structure in a language it understood, which was math. And I thought to myself, this has got to be a cosmic joke. Math is my worst subject in school. And, you know, it seemed like Greek to me. And and, you know, later I found out, you know, that they thought, oh, that's good, because you know, if you're a math dummy in this lifetime, you won't have any preconceptions on, oh, this won't work, you know, or that won't work. So um, I started, so it was thousands and thousands of different substances, thought forms, emotions, uh, vitamins, minerals, everything, the mathematical signature for them. You know, and, and before that, I'd thought in terms of frequencies, and I said, no, math is faster. It's it's more a direct information into the system than, than frequency. Now, frequency has its role in this. We want you to include frequency-related sound, specialized sound, because it opens up a pathway into the cellular structure where then all it's easier to take information coming through. So um, as I said, so, and, and then, you know, they wanted me and I'm thinking like, well, how, you know, I can put this into a computerized program, you know, and, but how am I supposed to deliver this math to these people? And they searched my memory banks and came up with a picture of Superman in the Fortress of Solitude, uh, downloading the crystals for his race's history. And I thought, crystals? And so I'm thinking, new age crystals? Do I have to go to a gem shop, find crystals? And they, and they said, no, 
We want these are these are real crystals, but they need to be made a certain way so that they transmit inform take in for information and transmit it immediately. Regular crystals hold in information. We want it to be immediately so that we can plug these in a way to plug them into the computer. So when if you hold them in your hands, this information will get through to you. So. You know, all this seemed very bizarre. I couldn't even figure out how to put a handle on these crystals until one day I was riding my bike in Santa Monica and going down the ocean front and they kept pushing my 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 view to the handles on my bicycle. And I realized, oh, you know, cylindrical rubber tubes can do this. So, you know, it's sort of like one thing after another and and after about 5 years I thought, well, it's as good as I think for a first pass, I don't know if this is going to work. I, please God, do not send me on a fool's mission, you know. Because uh, shortly after I died, my my parents died, and they left me money, which went to developing this, you know. Because my guides had pretty much said, you know, we don't want outside investors in this. This has to, you know, we just want you to work on this yourself and. You know, whatever you do in the future, that's still up to you. But right now, you know, this is what, the way we want it. And they they said they were from the eighth dimension. They called themselves the founders. Um, and they said they actually had worked with me before, um, not in this lifetime, but in the past. So, you know, I, I, I was led to bring it to uh, um, it was called the International Society for the Study of Subtle Energy Medicine in Colorado. And I brought it to their conference there and I, you know, had a booth there and I put a couple laptops up and invited people free to just try it and give me feedback. And before I know it, I had a line at my booth and all these people who could see energy were standing there and talking excitedly because they could see what was happening around the person while they were on this device. And which I can't see, I can feel energy, but I don't actually see it like some people do. And they, uh, so, you know, at, at one point they were really excited and they go, they said, well, I said, well, what are you seeing? They said, we're seeing plumping, like almost like rainbow energy coming out of the body. And I'd look over and what was playing uh, was um, uh, balance, balance the energy centers. And another time they said, oh, now we're seeing sharding. You know, it's like jagged coming out of the body and it was release emotional blockages. And then this one guy got on and he said to me, um, he, I didn't know he was a psychic and he was an ophthalmologist and he got on and he started, he started crying. And he had said, I didn't think I'd see this technology in this lifetime. He says, I remember this from Atlantean times. And he said, as soon as I got on, my, all my guides came forward and helped tune my psychic abilities. They became very sharp. And then I saw all the beings that were behind this. Now, he didn't know anything about my history. He said, I saw all the beings behind this. And then I saw a man come forward who identified himself as your father. And he said, well, that was money well spent. And that was a phrase my father tended to use. And this man did not know my father had died shortly after my near-death experience. And in fact, my father did come back. He visited me and said, you were right. And I said, well, what was I right about? I had told him about my near-death experience. And he just said, oh, that's nice. I'm glad you're still here. I didn't know he was poo-pooing and he didn't believe it at all. And he said when he passed over to the other side, he remembered what I said and knew exactly what it was all about. So um, 
so it just it just took off from there. It grew in many different uh, um, versions of it, and now it's all over the world. It's used by holistic uh, uh, soft, uh, people and traditional uh, mainstream medicine too as an adjunct, and it's called Trinfinity Eight. And a couple of years ago, I added Ascension 11, which was the spiritual version of it. So, you know, that's, uh, that's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of other jigs and jags along the way to this story, but, but it, that's what opened up um, my creativity that led into everything else, not only developing this instrument, these instruments, um, but writing and um and everything else so um you never know where you're gonna land up in life that's that's the interesting thing you know it all seems to come together what things that you had that were abilities early on in life that you didn't think oh i probably never use that and then it comes into play somewhere down the line so and you know of course i pay attention when they when they tell me because if i don't pay attention to them i usually find myself kind of get off the path and in trouble but you know so it's uh, um i'm not you know one of those people who hangs out her shingle and is a, a psychic or anything like that but you know i used it in the way they asked me to and um i was surprised when people started reporting back i mean there's thousands now um, or hundreds of thousands because of all their clients and patients all over the world and how, how it's helped. So, you know, the only thing if you look at it and you say, did my life, you know, did I do something to make it, you know, a little bit better? Well, yeah, I kind of did. But, you know, it's sort of like then you want to go on and do other things as well. Kathy, thank you for sharing your experience with us. Do you have any other abilities that you noticed you had after your experience that you haven't mentioned yet? Well, they did tell me um, that I needed to go back to some of my roots. Now, I couldn't obviously go back to Atlantean times, and uh, but uh, to Egyptian times. And so um, I tried to go to Egypt in um, 2011, and it was um, it was I I was supposed to leave, and a month before I was supposed to get there, there was the Arab Spring uprising in Cairo, Egypt, and the whole country shut down and there went the trip. So I wasn't able to go back to 2014. And, you know, I was only there with a tiny little group. And I remember the first time I actually got into, I went, um, there was four of us in the King's Chamber and we had two hours to ourselves there. And I got in the sarcophagus and I, I just automatically, no one had told me, I just started toning because it's this incredible sound chamber. And my guides had pretty much taught me a lot about sound. And as soon as I, as soon as I started toning, um, I saw the lid of the sarcophagus uh, shut over me. Now there is no lid in actual life on the sarcophagus, but I saw it shut and I was entombed in it, not knowing at the time that I was buried alive at one time in Egypt. But there was that first moment of panic, I'm, I'm buried alive. And I heard my guide say to me as, you know, as clear as can be, uh, you know what to do. Let me stop you for one second because I don't want this to pass by us. What is toning? Um, it's just um, like, you know, um, oming, and chanting and uh because the the resonance in in that is just goes through you and it sets up this vibrational um where it just opens up channels you know if you're open to that it will open up channels so um 
as soon as they told me, you know what to do, I realized I did. And I slowed down my breathing and I felt myself lift out of my chest as an out-of-body experience. And suddenly the whole bottom of the sarcophagus opened up into a shaft of light and I was propelled down it. And I remember thinking, uh, aren't I supposed to go up? Isn't this supposed to be like an ascension thing? Why am I going down, you know? And what I realized was that what I was seeing in the pyramid was I went all the way down and saw water tunnels underneath the Great Pyramid, which nobody had ever talked to me, told me about. It was the water tunnels. And then under that, I saw what looked like the remains of an ancient city. And before I knew it, I, I was going through the Sphinx and I went shot out through the head of the Sphinx. And I didn't know at the time that there is a hole on the top of the Sphinx that that used to be a hole and it's plugged up now. I shot out of the top of the Sphinx and then somebody in my group leaned over the sarcophagus and said, Kathy, are you done in there yet? And immediately I got sucked back into my physical body. So I don't know what would happen, but it stuck with me. And I started leading groups there. And one of my Egyptologist friends, I said, listen, I don't care how much it costs, but I want to get under the Great Pyramid. I want to get into the water tunnels down there. And he said, well, nobody's been down there since like 1952, which was when Dr. Salim Hassan followed, found it. And it's pretty much been shut up because it's like 150 feet down from the surface. You know, the iron ladders are kind of rickety, irons, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he talked with the head of the Giza Plateau in antiquities, and we went back and forth for months. And, you know, and finally, you know, I, I could feel them from afar checking on me. Who is this girl? And how does she know that these water tunnels are down here? And... Um, because, you know, I learned a little bit of remote viewing from uh, Russell Targ when I lived in Northern mm. California. Oh. And um, so I knew somebody was checking me out. And so I figured I'll just leave it to them. You know, I'll just feel real benign here. <laughs> you know, she's just a girl. She's nobody. She's no spy or anything else like that. And so um, he got back to me and he said, well, they gave me a price. And he told me what it was. And I said, oh, okay, great. You know, I would have done more, but I didn't say everything in Egypt is negotiable, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we arranged at, uh, was 4 a.m. in the morning to, um, was dark. And I was the only one with a flashlight, the thought to bring a flashlight. And so we're, we're going over the Giza plateau on foot and leads me to under the causeway, there's this kind of iron door and he the head of the Giza plateau my my Egyptologist and I were the only ones there and he opens it with this great big key or rather gives it to me and said would you like to open it I'm sure and the first the very first level which was really interesting um well that part wasn't interesting because it was just a level that went down into the ground and I couldn't figure out what that was for so I went down this ladder uh, this iron rungs, and I didn't know how far it went down. And, you know, they asked me, do you want to go first? And I said, sure. I, you know, I didn't think about snakes or anything else like that, which people ask me about later. I just, you know, I love adventure. So I went down into the second level. There was all of these, uh, there was these seven niches where huge sarcophaguses used to be, and there was two remaining sarcophagus. They looked like they were made out of basalt. 
and I their their lids were ajar, so I could look down in them, and I could see resin kind of on the scene, and I knew immediately that these were made. These weren't brought down any shaft; they were made in a form on the spot there. And I, you know, I realized later that the Romans didn't perfect concrete and molds and everything else the ancient Egyptians did. You know, they could they could slow down the process, the the uh, um, affirming process, the cementing process, and in in their their techniques. So I knew immediately these. That's how some of these big sarcophaguses were done on site with a granulated um, quartz or. Uh, uh, or the like red aswan, you know, um, quartz and brought down in bags. And then they were, water was added, you know, their emulsifying things were added and so forth like that. So anyway, so, you know, I thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, and immediately I saw that these were representative for the seven gods of the underworld, you know, in the ceremonies that the Egyptians do, because there were seven big, huge niches for sarcophagi. And so then I went down to the third level, um, the iron ladder down to the third level, and there's water lapping at the bottom of the ladder, and that's where the water tunnels were. And, you know, I could see not far from where the iron ladder uh, ended was there was a big sarcophagus buried in the water, and it had writing on it. And I asked the head of the Giza Plateau, has anyone ever opened this sarcophagus? Because they refer to this as the Osiris shaft now. And they thought, you know, maybe Osiris had been buried there or something. And obviously not because my guides had told me right away, they won't be able to open it because it's DNA sealed. It's hermetically sealed and you have to have the right DNA to get into it. And um, so I had been prepared. I was taking pictures. I had been, I was doing it fast because I didn't know if anybody would stop me, but I had prepared to take water samples while it was there. And so um, what I did was, uh, uh, you know, I had uh, specimen bottles um, in my, my uh, backpack. And as I'm taking out one of the bottles, my card, key card from my room at the Mina house, which is right next door to the Great Pyramids, the, the Mina Hotel, it flew out of my bag, out of my knapsack, my backpack rather. And you know, usually when something falls, it falls straight down while your feet or something. This actually flew out into the water and landed right on the sarcophagus. And so the head of the Giza Plateau is trying to retrieve it for me and it goes deeper and deeper into the silt that's in it. Cause there's papyrus in the water and um, you know, kind of other debris. And so it went down deeper and I thought, you know, someday somebody's going to open this or try to open this or go down there and think, I wonder whose hotel key this was. <laughs> Actually, when I went back to that Vina house, you know, I had to get a new key. They said, what happened to your old key? And I said, well, I lost it somewhere. <laughs> you know, um, But I took the water samples. I was not prepared to go in the water. I didn't know what was it, but I did have um, a magnometer with me and there was an increased level of magnetic energy down there. And there was a little bit of a charge in the air as well. So something was going on down there. I don't know if it was coming from the sarcophagus area because I, I felt from what my people were telling me, uh, it does lead to a portal. 
And but you're not going to be able to get into it. You know, only certain people have been keyed to get into this particular portal. And I don't think I was one of them, obviously. So um, so I took the samples and when I brought them back to the States, I had them uh, at an approved uh, certified water lab and they looked at it and they, you know, they were a little surprised. I didn't tell them where it had come from, but I had it tested for many different things. You know, it uh, wasn't polluted, but it had a high degree of salinity and the um, Nile River is about five or six miles now from the Giza Plateau. It used to be right up, you know, right against it at one time. And then at the Aswan Dam uh, changed a lot of the, uh, where it is now. And that is a freshwater river. It's not, you know, it's not like the Mediterranean. So I have to think, where's the salt water coming from? You know, do, is it coming from, is it leaching off the walls? We, we looked at that too, and they didn't feel, it, they felt it was stronger than that warranted. So I actually started tracking it to um, the underwater tunnels to Hawara. Now, there was uh, somebody who was already doing some research at Hawara, and uh, she was, you know, she hadn't got the sanction of the um, uh, Egyptian authority, she, went, she was doing ground penetrating radar, and she found that there was like 12 bunker-sized rooms under Hawara. And so when I went to Hawara, there was moguls all over the sand, which is not something you usually see, which tells me there's collapsed tunnels. So uh, I think what they did is, that, and it used to have a lake around it as well, which fed into the ocean. And so I think that they started some of their ceremonial um, uh, the, you know, the boat that they went into during the death, uh, ritual, um, the solar boat. And I think that they actually redid the ceremony from the underground tunnels, water tunnels from Hawara to the great pyramid where they, that was the resting thing, but no one's ever talked about this. And so when I, when I got back, I started to discover that there was water tunnels under most of the major uh, pyramids in the world under uh, Chichen Itza in Cozumel, under uh, Teotihuacan in Mexico, under uh, in the Bosnian pyramid. And uh, so obviously uh, they, the pyramids were built on a water source for a very obvious reason uh, to them. I mean, it was planned that way. And, you know, we, most of us feel that uh, uh, what the pyramid was originally used for is not what the pyramid is used for now. It went through a lot of different things, you know, and uh, that's a whole nother <laughs> show. <laughs> I was going to ask, and maybe you can just give us a short answer. What do you think the purpose of the pyramid was for originally? Well, um, I, th I think it was to, because most of the uh, the Atlantean, most of the uh, Egyptians were Atlanteans. Uh, the Atlanteans knew and the third and final cataclysm when it was destroyed. And many of them saw it was coming because they were very in tuned in and psychic. And they started creating their outposts all over the world, you know, India, Egypt, uh, Antarctica. Antarctica was once a lush, fertile, you know, tropical land. And uh, so, you know, there was some polar, a little bit of polar shifting when they had, because they believed that a meteorite actually did strike the earth at that time. And the original purpose was to cement the energies of the earth. Uh, and the Great Pyramid was on the very, very center of 
each of the world. It was sort of like the center point. So everything, everything, it was like, you know, grand operating room, you might call it, grand central station. So I think that was the original concept of it, but then they, they used it for, um, uh, for communication for other worlds. Uh, they used it for an ascension device, especially during the time of Akhenaten. Now, I know personally, because I was around during Akhenaten's time, and I saw it as clear as could be, because a lot of my memory banks opened while I was in Egypt, and I saw that Akhenaten was, you, was, had prepared that as an ascension device for souls to transmute from this dimension to other dimensions, and it, uh, it got corrupted, unfortunately. He was... He was, uh, there were some bad elements that were giving him bad advice. And by the time that most of us found out it was corrupted and trapping souls within dimensions, that they're still there until they can be free during the next ascensional point. That, um, I mean, I just cried because, you know, it's sort of like I got deceived too. And because he was an advanced soul, and sort of like an avatar soul. And because he didn't really finish his mission during that lifetime, he reincarnated and came back as Jesus. And so many, and, and to try to once again bring man, because Akhenaten was just for the one God. He, you know, all the, the Aten priests were into many, many, many gods and, you know, pay me this and pay me that and I'll, you know, provide you an access into heaven. And Akhenaten was saying, no, there's only one God, the Ra, the sun God, and he is the supreme source, source energy. And of course, he was vilified by the priests of that time who would lose control if they allowed the people to follow this heretic king. So they actually scratched his name off of, you know, in um, in Abydos, which is was the temple to the cosmic priests, the priests, the futurinaries, the visionaries. They could see into the future. And there's a, a big wall, a gold wall there of the lineage of all the pharaohs, the kings and so forth. And he is uh, suspiciously missing from that lineage, you know. So you know, they, they tried to wipe out history, just like most of our history has either been hidden um, forgotten or wiped out, you know, especially all the um, pre-dynastic times in Egypt and the Atlantean times. And if you go back through many of the ancient uh, texts, whether they be uh, Hindu, uh, you know, Indian, anything, um, even Celtic and so forth, they all talked about the times of the flood and lands, Plato as well, uh, lands that came before that, that, that went down. And so, you know, we lost a lot of our history, all that advancement, and, you know, we kind of started again, but there was a lot of souls that did make it, you know, that did survive Egypt, and they, they were the ones that really taught the, um, the Egyptians uh, um, advanced things. And, you know, we, everybody thinks they were aliens, but, you know, it's sort of like, well, who's to say that some of the 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 Atlanteans weren't from other dimensions as realms? So I'm not I'm not discounting that. Don't get me wrong, but they already had that knowledge, and we just sometimes are just relearning what we already knew, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. You took the question right out of my mouth. Do you think that Akhenaten and the other Egyptian gods were aliens and just, you know, made themselves gods to the native? humans here on the sure. planet.
Sure. Anyone who had advanced capabilities, knowledge was always back then seen as a god. You know, it's, uh, um, uh, yeah, Osiris, you know, was seen, they made him into a god, but he was a man. Thoth was, a, you know, was seen as a god, the keeper of wisdom and knowledge. And, and you know, um, many of them responsible for the mathematics and how the pyramids were built. I mean, the pyramids go back... Mm, the Egyptians, you know, having spent, having taken so many groups to Egypt, you know, even my Egyptologist kind of winks and nods now, you know, yeah, they're a little bit more than 4,000 years old, but that's what the traditional Egyptian narrative is, because anything that goes back further than that kind of nullifies Allah, the religious aspect. And then you get into a lot of gray areas, but, you know, even... Um, even Edgar Cayce talked about them being going back 10,500 years or so, and that the Sphinx was actually older. Now, I, you know, I've done research at the Library of Congress and other places, and I found some of the really ancient pictures that go back from the 1800s when we see some of the um, uh, British and Italian archaeologists, and that Sphinx did not look anything like it does now. I mean, you have to laugh because it's had so much cosmetic surgery over the years and reconstruction and restoration and so forth. It looked like a little snake because, and you could see all of the erosion, water erosion from uh, early times from the great flood, you know, during, they said during the age of Leo, because that was the constellation in the sky at the time. And this only thing could be water erosion. And they kind of poo-poo it, but, you know, geologists say this is water erosion, big wartime water erosion. And so there was tunnels in there. And, you know, there I've been up the, I've, I've been in one of those tunnels under the Sphinx um, in physical body uh, a couple years ago. Um, it was in the back of the Sphinx and it was a tiny little hole and I crawled down it when we made sure no, no one was looking and at night. And um, there was a guard around, but he just thought we were just talking about, you know, our group and what was going on back there. And we, you know, we had, we, we ripped open the door, you might say, there was a little grate. And I was the only one who could crawl down there. My guide wasn't, he was too big. And there was a little ladder and I crawled down it about, maybe about 10 feet. And uh, there was a tunnel. And but the tunnel only went for maybe about six or seven feet before it was closed off. So a lot of those tunnels that were originally there have all been sealed off along the time to either help the uh, the structure from not you know uh, losing uh, from crumbling anymore. Um, there was believed that there was actually two sphinxes, and um, I once climbed behind the dream Stella, which is between the paws, and saw there is an opening back there as well. And then of course I was kind of run off, <laughs> get out of there. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm kind of like my father, just go in there and do it and then either pay the fine or, <laughs> or the price afterwards, because they're always gonna tell you, no, you can't do that. And, but you know, if you've already done it, it's, it's kind of too late. And so, you know, I was wondering to know what, because I remember, having always entered through um, the, uh, between the paws. And uh, that was before the time of uh, Ptolemy I, who, who was the one responsible for 
for putting up the dream Stella that is between the paws. So, you know, it was a convenient way to hide any entrances into it. So yeah, there's, there's so much that, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, I always kind of, you know, roll my eyes when I hear some of the traditional stories in Egypt, like when I, Saqqara, I love Saqqara and Abydos are my favorite. And so when I go to Saqqara, Saqqara was home to all the sound healers, the magicians, you know, and there was this big open plaza there. And, and they said, oh, this was so they could run chariots around. And I started laughing and I said, no, I said, this is the entrance down into the temple, beautiful before you, the temple sacrificed to the temple, beautiful. These are Atlantean temples. They recreated it back here. And then years later, they started to find those entrances. And now those entrances are open and exactly what I said. So, you know, it was, you just, they just kind of make it up sometimes if they don't know what it's all about. If I get back to your NDE, how did that change the way you practiced? Well, it, it stopped the way I practiced because of the fact of how I was feeling people stuck. You know, when one door opens, another closes, or one door closes, another opens. And um, I, I knew it was time to retire my practice at that time and just work on this technology that was coming through. And, uh, you know, so I didn't tell a lot of people what I actually I was doing at the time because I, I knew they'd think I was crazy. So um, to self-preservation, you just said, oh, I'm, I'm kind of consulting, you know, <laughs> and, and leave it at that. So, you know, I was going out on a limb and uh, I'm thinking, I'm going to go through my whole inheritance doing this. And like I said, I, I was just a little bit nervous that this was maybe a fool's mission. But, you know, that was the lesson in trust that I had to say, they said, trust the process. Did you ever discover what caused your heart to stop? No, that's really interesting because um, uh, I, in 2000, it was January of 2020, I went to the Tucson Gem Show. I was living in Arizona at the time and I got COVID and it was before everybody else got COVID. And um, I remember coming back and I was like, what is this thing? Because I almost never get sick. And I was wheezing a little bit. So I started walking up hills to strengthen my lung, but I went, decided, okay, maybe I should just go see a cardiologist this time around. So I did. And, you know, he did all the tests and he goes, and I didn't tell him I'd had a near-death experience. He goes, I'm seeing scar tissue on the left side of your heart. Where would that come from? And then I knew, oh, that's where it came from. <laughs> but they had healed it enough, even though the residue was still there, the scar tissue, that I didn't have any problems with um, energy or exercising. I'm very active. And so that didn't stop me, didn't slow me down. But I said, ah, there's the physical proof right there, because there was nothing else that would have, you know, contributed to that. When you first said that half your body was paralyzed, I was thinking that, that. Yeah, that you had a stroke. Well, I thought it was a stroke, but it was, and you know, because you just don't know. You're paralyzed. You know, it sounds like a stroke. Mm -hmm. But I just, it was, all they told me was that your heart had stopped. And um, so I don't know for how long it was, uh, but it didn't seem to affect me in ways that you would have probably anticipated. You know, um, I didn't have any problems with speech, word retrieval, any cognitive deficits or so forth like that. And uh, 
I certainly would have been aware of them because I had enough clients that I, you know, did, was able, I was doing that kind of assessment. Since you are a clinical psychologist, right after your NDE, you must have evaluated yourself through that lens. And what were you thinking at the time? Um, Nobody's going to believe this. (laughs) Yeah, nobody's going to believe this. Uh, But how else would I've gotten all this information out of nowhere? And uh, because it was crazy. And how is it that I'm understanding stuff that I had no understanding of before? And so you just have to kind of trust that. And, and of course, you know, they were telling me, you know, of course I could have thought, you know, maybe I'm just hearing voices in my head and this is all my imagination, but they seem to be pretty accurate. And, and they were leading me down a path and, uh, uh, most people don't know it. I just turned 70 this year. Wow. And, and I, I always joke because I said, you know, somewhere in the tunnel and they said, we're going to give you this. And if you take this mission, we'll keep you young and energetic and active. And I said, yeah, I'm in. And this is, you know, it's sort of like, cause most people have no idea how old I am. It's really hard to gauge. And, but you know, it's sort of like, I think all of this energy plus my device, the technology they, they seeded down and so forth like that has all been a contributing factor. You kind of stunned me with your age there because I thought you were my age, about 50. So I was, I dropped my question because I was like, wow. <laughs> you, I mean, you look amazing for 50, but for 70, you look absolutely amazing. You know, I would have yeah. never guessed that. Well, energy can do that. You know, yeah. I actually know a number of near-deathers that uh, look young and radiant as well. So I, I think the experience too has a big component. And people say the tunnel, I always say the tunnel the reason they merge with me in the tunnel and you could say, well, why did you need to die? Why don't they just merge into your physical body, you know, in everyday uh, time. And uh, um, it's because the tunnel is an energy conversion device. And it was much easier for their higher energy to join me in that tunnel, which is much faster rate than in the density of the energy of this particular dimensional realm third, third, fourth dimensional realm. And so um, that's my understanding of it. So, um, so yeah, now I'm often doing, doing sci-fi books and things like that. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people kind of wish that they had an NDE, but now that they see that you can look so youthful, they're really going to want to have one. <laughs> well, not everybody I know who's had an NDE and near-death experience, you know, looks as young. So, you know, I don't, you know. Maybe they didn't do the, you know, I've often said to them, how come I didn't have all of the, the Jesus and the bright lights and the beings in fields, beautiful fields and so forth, like other people have had in their experiences. And they said something very kind of funny. They said, some people need more convincing than others. (laughs) I obviously didn't. I just needed to go into the tunnel, get what I needed from them, come back and start the next, the next chapter of my life, you know, we all have our missions and I just, you know, that was, that was mine. So. Are you still in contact with the beings? Oh yes. They've been actually working with me on, um, a whole number of sci-fi, uh, my sci-fi trilogy series stacks library of truth, which mm-hmm. is, uh, um, it, it, and actually the story, the, I, the, it came to me, um, 
number of years ago as, as a, a psychologist, a client of mine, after having had a near-death experience, said, oh, I went to a place where I could look up everything and I could get the truth on stuff. And I said, oh, kind of like a library of truth. And that really stuck in my subconscious. And then the I was woken up in the middle of the night um, a number of years ago, and the whole storyline was in my head. And so, you know, I had to get up and I started writing it, but I didn't get around to actually making it into a book until the COVID years. And because I had more time and I couldn't go many places. So, and I was really nervous. I'm thinking like, you know, I've never, I've written uh, a fiction, a nonfiction book, which is Fractals of Goddess, Psychologist, Near-Death Experience and Journeys into the Mystical. So people learned my whole journey and about inventing the, the technology and so forth, but I'd never written a novel. And so I thought, you know, I don't know if I can do this or do it justice. So I just started writing and they were there and there were times that stuff was coming through and I was like, oh, really? You know, I didn't know that. And there was, you know, it was like, so two books came out, Stacks Library Truth, Stacks Awakening Truth. And what happened was it, it, it's about um, a young uh, library employee in the Library of Congress who accidentally stumbles upon a portal into an interdimensional Library of Truth where all the facts are kept on everyone. And of course, it's being manipulated by some bad guys. And um, so... In January of 2020, my guide said, get to the Library of Congress no later than the first week of March of 2020. And I kept thinking, oh, I got a, I got this Egypt group to lead in February. What's what's the big rush? And But I did. I booked it um, because they were really insistent upon it. So I went and spent a whole week with all the librarians at the Library of Congress, getting into places behind the scenes and the closed stacks, learning everything so that it'd be accurate. And a week later, the whole library got shut down for, as the country did, for COVID. And so thank God I paid attention or I wouldn't have had that experience. And uh, so all of the realism of that went into the book as well. And of course, I took my knowledge of psychopathology to make some very, very interesting, unique characters with unique flaws, um, unlikely heroes and uh, to make it very realistic. So um, the third book will come out in the trilogy series in uh, April, 2023. Hmm. And uh, so far so good, it's gotten good reviews. So I'm happy about that. That's great. I was had a lot of fun doing it. So it's, you know, it's, uh, I definitely had my guides there writing through it. They were my muses or, or maybe some new ones came in who were good at writing and not the geeky ones. And they kind of, I, I think we all can have that inspiration or access to, you know, um, to help from the other side. We just have to allow it. While you were in Egypt, or at least after you had been there, do you believe that it, there must have been some type of technology that built it? You know, it wasn't built with just bronze tools. No, no, it wasn't built with bronze tools. And, and, you know, I do believe they had lasers and everything back in that time, and they did uh, uh, know how to harness the elements, uh, and they knew how to uh, transmute energy, which we really don't understand. And um, so, but most of that knowledge was lost. And of course, the tools for that are not going to show up in anything that we would recognize. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, there's things there that defy, yeah, they couldn't have just done that with, you know, um, 
iron tools or copper tools or so forth like that. You know, it's uh, you, you have to, uh, you know, you have to look at things with a discerning eye because uh, uh, and not always by just just like in life today, whether it be in politics or anything else. You know, you have to kind of do a little discernment. I call this the age of discernment. You know, we have to kind of sift the wheat from the chaff because just like in the Stacks books, there's a lot of lies out there. And uh, what we're all seeking for is truth. So we, so my books were like a sci-fi, thriller, crime, and romance thrown in. So a little bit of something for everyone. And, and I, I fed my soul, my creativity after doing this big project all these years and feeling like I was working to help other people. Now I was working to feed my creativity. So yeah, so that's where I am right now. Does the story ever make its way over to Egypt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did bring in the uh, the water tunnels of Egypt in there. And in fact, some of my personal experiences, I've had alien encounters, I've had lots of different things. And and I wove some of them into the book. And that's that's kind of yeah, people who know me will recognize those 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 particular um experiences I had, but others will kind of think, I wonder if that's Kathy's or did she make that up? You know, I mean, I have seen mantis beings and, oh, wow. and other things, you know, it's, uh, I've seen them in my, um, in remote viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen underground tunnel systems. I've seen a lot of things that, that we don't think are there. So, you know, it's sort of like, eh, there's a lot we don't know. Haven't you also been in the tunnels under the pyramids in Mexico? Uh, no, I didn't go under that one, but I I do know that those particular ones in Mexico also have water as well. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so no, no, I haven't spent. I've been to some of them in Mexico, but I haven't. My, Egypt really was where I focused my energies because I felt like I that was where you know, in other lifetimes, I had, you know, the outposts where I had spent the most time and had the most experience with, especially like at Abydos, um, which, you know, it's sort of like all of the, all of the uh, pharaohs, they might have had the burial chambers in the Valley of the Kings or elsewhere, but they all wanted a grave that a symbolic grave for themselves at Abydos, because they thought Abydos was straight, had a straight source to a straight, you know, tunnel (laughs) to the source. And so they hedged their bets. They made sure they also had a a burial tomb there because there's an older tunnel, uh, older uh, uh, temple under that, a very sacred older temple, but they're never going to excavate it because of the fact it would ruin the temple that's above it. But um, there is uh, a shifting portal uh, in in the Abydos temple. Um, And... um, I had come in, run, run across a, a military person who had told me where it was. And I, for years, I tried to figure out from his description how to get to it. And I finally was talking to my Egyptologist and, and a light bulb went off in his head. He goes, I think I know where it is. And it was off a corridor that every time anybody goes by it, they never look at the wall. It was like nothing to see here. Keep going. Nothing to see here. That was like the energy of it. And finally, we looked at it and there was... It almost looked like a sleigh to heaven that you would have seen in the movie. Um, Where's that movie with the the time machine with the Ewoks? And he is exactly how he this this military personnel described it. That it was um, 
it was a shifting portal. So, you know, how they can get it to open and so forth. But apparently back in ancient times, the Melchizedek priest, the priest to the priest, cosmic priest to the priest, knew how to do that. That's why they were called the visionaries, the futurists, that they could look into the future and see what was coming down the pike. Out of all of your travels to Egypt, what is the most important discovery you have made personally? Um, well, it, it would be the personal thing of, of realizing what I had done there and what I was part of and, um, and reclaiming some of that knowledge again in this lifetime. So, because it wasn't until after I went to Egypt that I understood then how I knew to do some of the stuff that I did uh, in my inventions and that, that, that it was all buried. It was all buried deep inside and it came forth and suddenly all the pieces of the puzzle started coming together. So I think that's why my guides had really said, you need to re go back to Egypt now after you've done this device and reconnect and it'll all make sense to you. And I wasn't, you know, at the time I didn't think that I was going to get all these downloads of past life experiences there, but it did happen. Well, if people want to find out more about your books, do they find them on Amazon or on your website? My website will take you right to Amazon. It's available Amazon Kindle and Amazon Print. And uh, the first book just came out in audio through uh, Audible. And uh, so they can go to stackslibraryoftruth.com to get more information on it. But it's also it also can be ordered through Barnes & Noble and through other libraries, through distributed through Ingram Spark. And so, you know, all this, uh, it just, uh, the first book came out last June, the second book in um, November of 2022. And this book, would, so they this, this information has come out fast and furious. And sometimes um, what I'm writing about then happens like the next day or two or a week after I've written it down. So um, wow. I'm looking at it now as some of the stuff that's coming through is very prophetic. So, but it's, it's, in, so somebody said, oh yeah, I know you're claiming this is sci-fi, but it's really more like nonfiction fiction. <laughs> if somebody, so maybe they need a whole new category. If somebody wants to reach out to you and ask you questions, should they do that through your website? Yeah, they can do it through the website or they can get me at uh, stackslibraryoftruth at gmail.com. Besides your new book coming out, do you have anything else that you're working on that you want us to know about? Uh, no, not at the moment. You know, that has kind of taken all of my energies right now. And, and um, you know, there's a third book, but, but somebody said to me, no, I'm seeing a fourth book. Hmm. And then one day I'm writing down the freeway and I'm not thinking about it, but the fourth book popped into my head. It's a book 20 years later. Cool. That's great. <laughs> so we'll see. All right. Kathy, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Yeah, trust in the process. It sounds like a, a clinical psychologist, you know, you know, giveaway that, that you always hear, but do trust in the process. And um, really um, what my guides were trying to show me is that Truly, we are unlimited. We're only limited by our own beliefs that we're limited. And um, once you, it's sort of like, you know, you think you can't do something, you try it, you, you find, you interview other people, ask them how to do it, and you learn to do it. And that's kind of it. You know, you just kind of throw yourself in there, take the risks, 
and and do it so you have no regrets. I, you know, I once had a client that said she was a little older. She goes, "Oh, I'm too old to go back to school." I said, "Well, what if you live 20 more years? What's what's three or four more years out of that?" And she goes, "Oh, yeah, you're right." <laughs> Kathy, thank you for that message, and thank you for being my guest. Oh, thank you. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.